When I was living in New York, hear the street noise on the outside, oh, the yeah. sirens going by. You get used to it. And then, you know, when I moved out here to Minneapolis, at nights there was no sound. And I kind of miss street noise. And then I realized you can get these white noise apps that have the city noise. Yeah. And I was like, wait, no, I don't miss it that much. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. All right, and that was Michael Vinsky, as always, reading the uh, intro to our podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Michael, for your help. Thanks, everybody, for being loyal subscribers. I'm Reed Smith. On the other side of the microphone is Chris Boyer. And we, each and every week, bring you this very podcast. Chris, how's it going? Hola, Reed. Welcome to spring. And up here in Minneapolis, it's snowing. Oh, good. Uh, here in Texas, it's pretty warm. Matter of fact, I was just thinking how hot it is in this room. But um, <laughs> so I'm probably gonna be sweating by the time we get off the podcast. But and I'll put on another layer. <laughs> it is uh, air conditioning weather down here. That's the way it goes. Here we are, episode 61. And for those that have downloaded the episode, obviously know this is about AI, and we've talked a little bit about that. So, but I think we've got an interesting show today. Some interesting thoughts and topics. Before we do, though, I mentioned loyal subscribers earlier. Uh, Maybe a little bit about uh, one of our loyal sponsors, no pun intended, I guess. Loyal Health is one of our sponsors and have been since the beginning. A little bit about their AI-driven platform. It's one of those things that provides healthcare systems the tools that they need to amplify, not only patient feedback, but guide patients through their digital journey. What's really cool about Loyal Read is that they have a whole team of people, engineers, marketers, data scientists, And those people are really adept at understanding hospitals' business needs and translating them into good solutions. And that's why they partner with some of the leading health systems to promote patient loyalty through a smarter digital patient experience. Well, there you go. So to learn more about what they do uh, across their entire spectrum of products, not just guide and amplify and all the other things that they've got, but check them out online, loyalhealth.com. Tell them we sent you. Sign up for a demo. Ask about their new product, Rectify. Rectify. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm just making it up. I don't know. Trademark that. Talking about AI. So we've talked about it before, and we talked about it as parts of episodes. We've talked about it as an entire episode. But what what are we talking about today? Why Why is this different? I don't know, Reed. I don't think we could get enough of AI. AI isn't everything. And whenever you say it to someone, their eyes get really big. They get kind of excited or they get really nervous about what AI is and the potential it can hold for hospitals and health systems. I'm reading blog posts about it every day. It's all over LinkedIn. It is everywhere and it is part of everything. And I think that's kind of the point. I mean, this isn't a thing. It's becoming part of all things. That sounds really scary. I mean, that's true, right? I mean, what we're doing? Yeah, it is. Okay. So again, what what are we talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence? Well, we're talking about machines being able to start to process large amounts of data. And when they're processing all of that data, 
they could start to identify trends and define algorithms themselves in order to respond to some of that data and solve business problems. Or in the case of healthcare, sometimes even solve healthcare problems. And, and actually evolve along the way so they, they can adapt and yeah. they learn from the more information they get. Typically, you're, you're setting the stage, I guess. So if you have an AI initiative, a chatbot or something like that, you're feeding data into it so it can do something day one, right? It's got something it can play off of. It's got some parameters. If it's a chat bot, maybe it has all of us to your physicians and locations and kind of how those uh, marry up and you know some keywords and stuff like that. But as it starts understanding what people are asking it and what the right answers are and things like that, right, it starts getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger uh, where it's becoming smarter and smarter to actually help you where we're, we're getting to that place where the website, you land there and there's just a search bar. There's no menu and so it's it's smart enough to process information like a human would. Yeah, it's becoming a sentient being, right? It's starting to develop enough contextual clues and the way you're interacting with it that it's basically adopting the things that we as humans typically have done for a very long time. Forget about those old librarians with card catalogs or the operators that can direct people to the right places. All that stuff is getting out of the way. Now we have computers guiding us through. And there's multiple different ways and applications of how AI is being applied in today's businesses. We found a couple of articles that talk about different aspects of artificial intelligence and they pose some interesting questions that we might want to talk about because when we look at the future of AI, who knows what it's going to be for us here in hospitals and health systems. Let's jump in. So first article, it's actually from the New York Times and it's titled, Your Data is Crucial to a Robotic Age, Period. Shouldn't you be paid for it? Question mark. So the point being is, I mentioned a minute ago, we've got to actually dump information in to get it up and off the ground. However, they get smarter and learn, the robots that is, based on additional inputs of data. And the fact that this data becomes a critical part of artificial intelligence as we move forward, but have we even discussed the data itself? So let me start with a quote from the article, which is pretty interesting. They say, spring break pictures on Instagram, the YouTube video explaining Minecraft tactics, the internet searches and the Amazon purchases, even your speed following ways on the way to spend Thanksgiving with your in-laws. This data is valuable and it will become more valuable, potentially more and more so in the not too distant future. The data that we are gathering through all of these multiple different tactics and tools out there is really becoming the economy of the future age. Yes. I mean, we don't even realize that when it's happening initially, to, to their point, right? right? We're just posting a picture somewhere because we think people would like to see it. Uh, you know, I remember at South by Southwest, I think I've even mentioned this before, a couple of years ago, I went to a session, uh, had a linebacker from the Philadelphia Eagles, and it was about data, more around wearables. His point, however, was is like, who owns the data? of the wearables. They have all these sensors on their pads and in their clothing where that's where on TV they can, you know, go back and in replay have the little line show you where all they ran around the field and you know those types of things, right? And he said that's all fine and good until I go to get a life insurance policy. And they call the Philadelphia Eagles and say, How many times was he hit in the head? And they're like, This right. many times. Okay, great. How many comparatively speaking? 
Oh, a 36% more than anybody else on the team. So what does that do to his ability to gain life insurance? The point was, is like, whose data is this? That's right. Who's da- who owns the data? And then we're hearing articles nowadays in the news around Facebook being hacked, right? With uh, Cambridge Analytica, they're hacking the data, but they're really not hacking the data. Facebook, Google, all these companies, what they're doing is they're providing all of this data to people. You know, you sent me that Medium article today about their reporting on Cambridge Analytica is completely off because they're not hacking. That was a legal transaction between Facebook and this third-party company. That's what they do. What else do we think Facebook is in the business of? Right. (laughs) I mean, they're in the business of data collection. They don't care about providing a social media platform for people to connect and, I don't know, whatever the little blurb says. I mean, that's not what they do. They're here to use data to sell services to people, either the data itself or to advertise better. The big idea here of this article is that companies use this data right now for free. They have access to this data. We sign up for our terms of services. We get our Gmail account. We go into Facebook. We go into name the social media platform of your choice. And we're just giving away this data about ourselves free. Mm -hmm. In the future state, is that data really going to become the economic commodity. Yes, it is. I think that train's already left the station, right? How do you undo what is currently happening? But I guess what I'm saying here, Reed, is the people, the users themselves, we as Facebook Mm -hmm. users, we as Gmail users, do we now have the right to say, you can use our data, but it's going to cost you? No, we've already signed up. That's the whole deal. It's just like, well, I don't like these terms of service. It's like, great. Don't be on Facebook. Or whatever the platform is, I don't want to pick on Facebook, right? And so there was MySpace, now there's Facebook. Is there going to be something next? I mean, possibly. I, I don't know. Facebook's gotten awfully big, just like Google, uh, Amazon, those types of places. And so if there's level of convenience and all your friends are there, that's where you're going to participate. So if somebody comes out of the platform tomorrow that says, hey, this is basically Facebook, but we pay you to be on it. People will love that. Right. But how do you monetize that day one, right? Right. You think you get a lot of ads now? (laughs) Sign up for a platform where they're paying you. You've basically just signed up for like a focus group. Now you're just going to sit there and watch ads all day. You're going to get bored with it. You're going to leave. So the adoption, the participation, it's this weird balancing act, I guess, of, you know, we're going to give you enough value to keep you around so you'll keep giving us data. Okay, but let's think about it a different way, Reed. Have you ever been part of an online market research where they pay you to take a survey? Have you ever done that? I'm not going to say I never have. I can't, none comes to mind, but I'm pretty sure I probably... No, I have. Mainly for a brand. Like, hey, if you do this thing, you know, we give you a Starbucks gift card or something. You know, one of those deals. The intention behind that is if you're getting paid for your data, will you give up more personal data? And I would say that it's that tit for tat, right? If you're giving up something or you're getting something for it, you're going to give better data rather than do this anonymous weird Twitter handle because you're going to get something in return. Yeah, I mean, if you're incentivized appropriately... People will do a lot of stuff, not just yeah. online. I mean, just like in general, e- even even things that are negative. I mean, you can think about all kinds of health-related things like that. Sure, if there's enough in, of an incentive, then then people will probably do it. But for how long? Well, that's the trick. It's figuring out how long and how to build that sustainable data model. But get this, Reed. In Europe right now, the European Commission is proposing to impose a tax on the revenue that digital companies get 
based on their users' locations on the grounds that, quote, a significant part of the value of a business is created where the users are based and the data that is collected and processed. That's going to be a tough one. Man, if they win that argument, I mean, the floodgates open. This is like the next iteration of uh, like Amazon must pay taxes, right, in the states where people buy the stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Now, now oh, we got to track IP addresses of where like ads are delivered and stuff and where people sign up. What, you don't? Well, sure, they do track that. But now they've got to turn around and actually apply some sort of algorithm back to the monetary value. So now do you have to take into account good grief? That's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. It's ironic that humans are providing free data to train all of these artificial intelligence systems to replace basically their jobs in the future. We're giving away the data for free, so how are we going to make it up for the future? There's always room for a better widget. If you're good at what you do, you will not lose your job. i tell you where I feel like this hurts the system. You know, you've got the people that, you know, want a capitalized type scenario where the best thing's going to win out, right? It's free economy. And that's all fine and good. I'm not really opposed to that. I think where this potentially hurts as far as taking jobs away are in the kind of younger, earlier in your career type jobs. So how do you ever build up? The knowledge base unless you're just like a savant unbelievable guitarist uh you know or you can think a lot of things in the arts right where that could play out where ai is gonna be really hard to replace yep. some 10 year old uh they can play the blues like bb king nobody wants a computer that can do that we already have all those in our pockets i think where it hurts though is in in the economy piece of it of you know going and finding jobs and trying to work your way up I think it's a little bit doom and gloom for what the future state is. When I think about how emails in the past were, remember back in the day before Can Spam Act, way, way back when, when email marketing was just in the beginning, people would give up their email address quite willingly. And you could, as a business, you could just acquire all these email addresses and just start emailing people. And now we're in a point where we have, if we're going to go out and acquire email lists, we're purchasing lists, we're renting them, you know, we're using them in a certain kind of regulated way, and there's some kind of financial transaction that occurs. Don't you think that in the future that's what's going to happen with social media data about people? Yeah, possibly, or something along those lines. This is what happens with everything, right, is the technology outpaces the regulations and the law and you know that kind of stuff. I think ultimately, though, it's going to come back to the individual user that there will be a point in time in the future where we as individual users will be able to have some kind of control over the data that's shared and with whom it's shared to in some way. There has to be some kind of way that we get some equity from that. Google Health way back when said, you know, put all the health data into the user's hands and let them control it. Maybe there's something, you know, to that in the future. Who knows? But why don't we pivot to the the second article, Reed, which is another aspect of artificial intelligence. And it's an article that came from VentureBeat.com. The article is called Citizen AI Teaching Artificial Intelligence to Act Responsibly. The big idea here is that AI is growing, obviously, we know that, but organizations that are looking to expand it into some sort of strategic application and really living up to that artificial intelligence part of the name, they need to start using AI in a responsible way. So what does that mean? To me, you know, in a responsible nature, 
there's got to be a worthwhile goal in mind. So it's not just where all can we use this? It's more of a where best can we use this? Right. What's the best application mm-hmm. of this? So they use the, uh, an example of Mount Sinai ICANN School of Medicine in New York using a, an AI system that's known as Deep Patient that's designed to predict risk factors around different diseases and using electronic health records from, you know, 700,000 patients. And it's also aiding in diagnosis of care. Mm. Here we are now getting where the where AI is facilitating and assisting doctors in diagnosing. With this particular application, businesses that are using AI in this way, they're approaching it with a little bit more care and responsibility. So we know AI is built on data. We're just talking about data. It's also got like statistical regressions, data mm-hmm. analysis. But the one thing that we do know also about AI is that AI can sometimes do unexpected things. We've talked about how Google's AI is suddenly starting to think for itself and program itself, <laughs> right? That's awesome. So, which is scary. So, how do you look at AI in a way that's a little bit more responsible? Well, I think I think the uh, the example uh, from Mount Sinai is an interesting one because they're aligning it with with evidence based medicine. That, that everybody likes to talk about, right? So they're looking at historical, you know, uh, or risk factors, you know, predictive risk factors. I think that makes a lot of sense. As long as they're aligning that with what their mission is, their goals, their values, that this isn't something that is, obviously it's not hidden because, I mean, we know about it. And if we know about it, then I'm sure anybody can find it. You know, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think that is what you know is good about it but in this article they're talking about quote unquote raising ai a certain way so that it doesn't get into these weird tricky predicaments and, and they they equate it to really raising and educating children which kind of scares me a little bit to think about right. that but really it's like fostering an understanding of right and wrong how do you make sure that you know you're imparting knowledge without bias and letting it be self-reliant without while also emphasizing the importance of collaborating and communicating with the humans, the programmers themselves. That feels kind of weird for us to talk about things this way, doesn't it? Because that's, there's a human element involved in all that. So like bias is an easy one. Well, how, how do you impart a non-biased environment as a human? Is that even possible? I mean, I, I like to think I could, but I probably can't. This is the Schrodinger's cat argument that you're having read here. We're just by us experimenting with it, we're imparting natural bias and we're influencing the outcome. Yeah, I mean, because like healthcare aside, the ability to be able to, let's talk about food. Well, how would you depart a non-biased environment around food? You can't because otherwise you've got to say it's all equal and everything tastes good. Or everything tastes bad or whatever. And we all know Arby's roast beef is way better than, you know, burgers from other <laughs> I'm so glad you got Arby's into this. <laughs> Do you like how I worked that in? Yeah. If anybody knows anybody at Arby's, you know, we if we could get a sponsorship from them, that would be that'd be super. Um, but the idea is like, you know, okay, if I was building this data set of like restaurants and what was good at restaurants well how am i going to do that i've got to take everybody else's human opinion into account are we not just 
back to where we started with just more numbers. Maybe. And, you know, this reminds me, too, that if you leave like an AI device unaided, even in the natural, most organic sense, sometimes you have really bad results. And I'm sure you've heard this anecdote of a a Twitter bot that was designed to tweet out things, you know, just randomly. And that ended up starting to align towards more white supremacist types of messages. Did you hear about this? No. They had to shut it off because it it developed a bias, a very extreme bias. Wow. I know. Well, that's that's awesome. That's scary. They indicate in this article, they talk about a couple of things. When you're starting to use AI, how do you start to address things like fostering an understanding of right and wrong? Because again, not everybody agrees on that. That's not quite black and white in in all cases. If you go back to the you know what they're talking about at Mount Sinai, which is doctors can turn to the system to aid. I think that's the key word there. Aid in a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So okay, there's probably a lot of true false statements in that algorithm. If this, then that, and you know some of that kind of stuff. So based on evidence based medicine because we're looking at risk factors a lot of health records of other patients so i mean i can see how that could be trained that way could that get out of hand yes it sure could it sure could and they and they position in here about you know what if an ai powered mortgage lender starts to deny loans to a qualified prospective home buyer what we need is we need some guidance we need some oversight and we need to try to build in regulations so that artificial intelligence doesn't start to do some crazy things like become, you know, crazy Twitter bots or whatever, right? You could also argue it the other way, right? Where there's so much human error, a computer that synthesizes all this data may be more accurate. There's also another thing that we need to, as we're starting to use AI more frequently, is we need to start uh, ensuring that there's responsibility and liability for organizations using AI. And they talk about an example where Audi, the car manufacturer, has announced that it's going to assume liability for accidents involving the 2019 A8 model, which has an automated system for driving, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it even says the German federal government has adopted ahead-of-the-curve rules around the way autonomous cars should act in an unavoidable accident, Choosing material damage over injuring people and not discriminating by gender, age, or race. So they're, they're going to claim liability for the A8 only because it has that feature. I'm a car guy. I like cars. That car is easily $100,000. Probably. Like, what are they really accepting liability for? How many of them are there? The car is crazy expensive. There's not going to be a ton of them built and not a ton of them on the road. Is that a safe bet for them? I guess what you're saying is a safe bet is a lesser liability. Potentially it could cost them less, for sure. And of course, that's what they're going to try it out on. But I mean, I think that it's interesting that these prototypes are starting to be built where companies are trying to regulate and if not self-regulate for their application of AI and their technologies and, their, and in their products and services. Again, there's still a human factor of like when that feature is used. I think that's something to keep an eye on. I mean, I think that's an interesting thought of, you know, the manufacturer taking responsibility. I'm sure there's tons of asterisks on the end of that, of when and how and what and all that kind of stuff. But that's an interesting thought. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. 
you know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. Our third article coming from outside of the United States. This is an international show, Reed. Yeah. <laughs> as far as anyone knows. Yes. <laughs> it's from the CBC. CBC.ca. Is that Canada? Of course, this says Nova Scotia up here at the top. Fez to search social media using AI to find patterns of suicide-related behavior. And you know it's foreign because they've spelled behavior wrong. <laughs> so that, that's an interesting thought, right? Because immediately you go, oh, what a great use case. We should definitely do that. We should definitely have something that monitors everybody and heads off a number of things. They say suicide. There could be some other stuff. You know, we see some of the arguments around guns, mental illness. Um, you know, you hear about a lot of these mass shootings where they had showed signs of this on social media for months or years or whatever, right? I mean, so there's these things where it's like, oh, well, yeah, we should definitely be doing this. It keeps everybody way safer. Sure. It's when used for the right things. So what's the downside? Privacy? Obviously, privacy is the downside of this one. And it's also the fact, like you said, right, it's just going to monitor us and just to determine if we post like a, you know, a string of social media posts that says we're a little depressed this week, that maybe someone will come knocking on the door and say, hey, um, we get a sense that you might not be feeling very good. You want to try some medication or, you know, do you want to talk to someone? What's going to happen? I don't know what the action is, I guess. You know, to play devil's advocate here a little bit, like, could we prevent suicide? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure. Is Should we? Okay. Yeah, sure. We should try to prevent suicides. But the way that we're getting the data, like, where does that stop? Is that a slippery slope? I mean, it's all of a sudden we're in the middle of everything, of everybody, you know? And then it's like, we were monitoring for suicides, but it appears as if your wife's having an affair. The line, where do you draw the line? Because, like, who, who makes the decision on what's important to monitor? Okay, first of all, in terms of drawing the line, there is no line. Refer back to our first article, right? All that data's for free. <laughs> so there's no line. I guess it's all out there. The line is right before you click the I agree button when you sign up for all these platforms. <laughs> I mean, we make jest of this, but who, you know who's doing this is the Public Health Agency of Canada. This is a government organization that is looking at ways to systemically address suicide rates, which is a big thing among Canadians aged 10 to 19. It's the second leading cause of death. That's crazy. I know. I guess my first question would be is like, would we have known this anyway? I mean, I think you would know the stats, right? I think you would know like, wow, you know, we have a lot of deaths. I mean, they obviously know the stats. They're not getting these initial stats of the 10 to 19 year olds from monitoring Facebook. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. I mean, like, I'll be curious to see what the payoff is. I mean, I hope it's good. This is a pop health approach. And when you talk to any of our friends that work in population health, 
doing population health initiatives, community health initiatives at hospitals, this is exactly what they're trying to do is use data to really understand where some of the greater health needs are and start to be more preventative and interventional. I would argue that we're trying to do this on a much lower level with every health system that has a pop health or community health initiative. That's true. You know, one of the comments they have in here is, you know, and it's in quotes, we're not violating anybody's privacy. It's all public post. So if they're pulling you know, stuff off of just public content, I think that's different than having some agreement in place with the platform that you're also gaining access, even if it's just thematic from uh, stuff that's, you know, outside of what they've chosen to be public. And let's continue on with that quote, right? He says, it'd be a bit freaky. This is, by the way, the advanced symbolics chief scientist, Kenton White. He says, it'd be a bit freaky if we built something that monitors what everyone is saying, and then the government contacts you and said, hi, our computer AI has said we think you're likely to kill yourself. That would be a bit freaky. And based on his title, he is smarter than me. So I don't even know what that means. They're going to look for regions, obviously, where this is um, happening. And then they're going to send additional counselors and mental health experts to the region. I mean, are they just going to wander around with bullhorns? Or, I mean, like, what's... Like, how do you... I, we're getting in the weeds here. Of, I, I'm sure they've thought this out way more than you and I have. So the company that's doing this is uh, will begin defining suicide-related behavior in January with monitoring slated to start uh, in later 2018. So that's kind of a to-be-determined thing. An interesting and probably very worthwhile use case. Yes. And there again, it goes back to our second article, which is, if we're using AI to act responsibly, then I guess it makes sense. Because I think in this use case, it would make sense. And many of our colleagues in population health or community health management will probably agree that this is actually a good application of AI. Right? Yeah, and I mean, everybody's a good person. Now, if we were talking about them monitoring people buying guns, we'd be freaking out, wouldn't we? I mean, I still think we're going to have people freaking out on this. Any sort of monitoring... First off, we got to come up with a better word than monitoring. Anytime we say monitoring, that's going to have a bad outcome. Do I think it's worthwhile to try to save people's lives? Um, yes. But it's just not quite that black and white, I don't think. These three articles raise the concerns that a lot of people are feeling around AI. And I don't think that we have a clear answer, Read on the right way forward. In the future, probably the Amazon Alexa will be our new chief strategy officer. And maybe, you know, an AI chatbot will be in charge of population health management. I mean, I don't see why not. I was going to use this cut line at the end. You ready? So I guess what it boils down to is artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent. Discuss amongst yourselves. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast. I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. So. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. 
Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! All right, here we are at touch point, touch counterpoint, talking about artificial intelligence and covered three pretty interesting articles. One thing that really jumps out to me, and I think it's maybe an interesting point we can discuss slash argue about, I guess, the responsibility of this. Can we trust organizations to actually be responsible with the implementation and use of, of AI? You're asking me if we could trust organizations to do anything responsible, Reed. I'm one of these guys that's like, no way can you trust an organization to do something right, unless it's a hospital and it's a nonprofit. But anything else, it's all about the money, man. They're going to use this to get all the data that they can in order to maximize their profit. They don't care about us as people. They don't care about our data. Unless they're a hospital and a nonprofit. And grief. I mean, that's maybe a little extreme. <laughs> First off, I'm not so sure that we can trust those folks either. But no, I, I think I think we can in the sense that um, we can trust them by the fact that they need our information. They need our data. Yes, they may be putting the process or system in place. But we're the one actually feeding the information in. So by definition, isn't that trustworthy? I mean, it's it's our information. If you're suggesting that people who open up Facebook to you know share the latest meme or you know funny video with all their friends, they're they're doing that with a consciousness that they're sharing data about their profile to everyone else. Well, I don't know, man. I think that you're you're living in a different world because quite frankly, we do all this stuff because it's easy and convenient. You've argued this many times before. People are not knowledgeably posting content about themselves knowing that other organizations are tapping into it. Even listening to the news lately, people still don't get it. How many people quit Facebook? Not a lot. Well, I mean, they may not quit it, but that doesn't mean that they, they're using it as actively as they have either. And two, if it was really valuable as an advertiser, not that we can't target people, but if it was super valuable, I'd be able to target people based on memes. But I can't. So we can't get all the data there, right? And so what does that really tell me about anybody? Well, the reason why you can't target people by names is because it's regulated by the government that you can't. Thank goodness that the government has some common sense to regulate us in that regard. No, no Otherwise, memes. advertisers... Memes. We can't target anybody based on the meme. By the meme. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I heard names. <laughs> well, I don't know. Memes say a lot about people's interests, their their sense of humor. But it's more than just memes, Reed. It's like everything that they're posting. Their whole data footprint is out there. And these companies are out there just pouncing on it, grabbing that data wherever they can, either legally or illegally, however they can. And they're going to use that data. So are you suggesting that these companies are going to self-regulate? I don't think so. What they're going to do is they're going to keep going further and further to get more data so they could actually target us even worse. Don't we want that? Don't we want to be targeted? If the quality of ad that I got 
uh, was higher, I'd probably enjoy it. Maybe the difference here is targeted versus shared relevant content. I don't think any of us wants to be targeted. And yet we are being targeted by people. We're getting interruption ads everywhere we go, everything we do. I don't care where you're going on the internet. It's all out there. And we've accepted it. Maybe we implement ad blockers all we want. But still, everybody's knowing about us and they're sharing data with us. And really, the only thing that I pay attention to is the stuff that's actually relevant to me. So that's not necessarily targeting, but I guess kind of it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think if we give more information, we get better content back whether that's ads or otherwise. Yeah, but I don't know. I, Google knows 2,200 data points about you. I'm not sure I want them to know all that about me. Well, it's too late, right? <laughs> we're, we're on the internet. The problem is you and I can't do our job if we're against this. <laughs> and I'm just suddenly realizing that people are probably listening to our voices and uh, analyzing what our preferences are by how we're arguing these arguments. Yeah, yeah, probably so. I mean, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if I got some free Arby's coupons, but I ain't got any of those yet. But and I really don't believe that all corporations are evil. Just a lot of them are. <laughs> Just most. All right, here with Ask the Expert portion of the podcast. And today I am very fortunate to be joined by Brian Gresh. Brian's the president of Loyal. And I'll let him give you a little bit more of his background, but uh, originally spent some time at the University of Utah Health, then Cleveland Clinic, and has now been with Loyal for, um, oh gosh, how, how long now, Brian? Six, eight, nine months, something like that? Yeah, just uh, just going past six months. Okay. And um, yeah, overall, I've been in, in the healthcare marketing space for about 20 years now. Spent a majority of that time at University of Utah Health and um, about just under three years at Cleveland Clinic. And then I... Uh, decided about six months ago to try something completely new and um, moved over into the startup world. Yeah, and that's where I am today. Awesome, awesome. Well, loyal uh, is is folks is loyal listeners. No pun intended. No, uh, loyal's been a a sponsor and supporter of the podcast uh, since the early days, <laughs> like a, like a year ago. If that's the early days, so we certainly appreciate that. But we thought you know it'd be great with today's uh, episode talking about AI. I mean, that's that's kind of y'all's wheelhouse. That's what you do. But maybe talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the space, the history of this, kind of where we're headed. You know, we're, we're where did this come from? Hospitals using AI, where do we initially kind of see that surface? I would say, you know, overall, AI is, it, it's kind of slowly kind of been building over the last couple of years. And I, I think what's important to kind of maybe point out is that AI is just a term that's being used, I think, pretty loosely across the industry. But it's clearly here. I, I was just out at uh, HIMSS uh, a couple weeks ago, and AI was everywhere as a topic. And so I think people are using it to describe a lot of different things. But you know, the way I kind of understand AI is it's really just a way of making our systems, our computers work better and understand better what um, the needs of the users are. And that can be done both through machine learning and also can tooling or, or human training um, of the computers. And so, you know, I think that's really the core of AI is it's, it's really just improving the systems and how they understand the inputs and the outputs. From there, 
you you have to really kind of then move to what are the interfaces um, that are actually taking advantage of the AI. And that's where I think people get really excited because there's there's voice interfaces, there's you know, there's chatbots, there's facial recognition, there's all of these different ways to interface AI. But AI is really just the brains behind all of those those interfaces. I think systems are using them in a lot of new and exciting ways. You're right. So I think from most people's viewpoint, when they start hearing AI, and, and just as a side, you mentioned hymns and probably AI was in the title of just about every presentation. And, and I think that next week I was at South by Southwest here in Austin and it was as well. So all the health presentations had AI in it. If it didn't, it had AR or VR. So, and again, we're, we're loosely using these terms, I think to your point to describe a lot of different things. And so you mentioned the interfaces. I think what a lot of people are seeing and associating this with is some of the consumer devices, Right. Especially the voice first. Pieces. Yeah, I mean, is that fair? A lot of what AI does is it as you train the, the back end system, it's it's really learning from the inputs. So whether those inputs are through your camera or through uh, the text that you're you're typing in, that's really the way the machine is is understanding what the consumer is looking for. And that's whether it's a consumer or whether it's, you know, a patient in a clinical setting um, there has to be an input for for there to be an output. And so I think where it gets tricky is how those inputs are set up and how the systems are trained. Because, you know, just like you can teach uh, a, a person the wrong way, you can teach the machine the wrong way as well. And that's where I think people get a little bit spooked by this idea mm-hmm. of AI, because there is a responsibility in terms of how you set up these systems in terms of how well they work on the on the front end. The, the kind of the spooky kind of fear around AI, I think, is a little overblown because these are just frameworks that that you can direct and train to create certain outcomes. Um, and that's where I think it gets really excited for it, exciting to create great consumer experiences or patient experiences. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So, I mean, we're not we're not in danger of robots taking over the world, uh, at least not yet. Not, not yet. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, what people think this is versus what, you know, today's reality looks like in, in the context of healthcare, right? Or, or hospitals specifically. So, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you seeing or hearing versus, you know, what, what is, you know, the, the practical application? You know, I really kind of come at this from the, the consumer experience side. So thinking about how can we use AI to improve the, the digital patient experience? Um, and so that could be, you know, accessing the EMR, that could be, you know, accessing health information or scheduling an appointment or, or any of those things that you might do in the digital space as a patient. I think there's a little bit of a misperception that you can simply kind of plug in an AI tool, you know, on your website or on your app, and that it suddenly is going to eliminate the need for human support um, by the system and that it's just going to be able to take care of everything that the patient needs. And and I think that's a a little bit overblown. I, I think that the best way to look at AI and and what it can what it can do is that it's it can help support some of those I like to call them lower acuity kind of problems or consumer problems. Take those off of the plate of the you know customer resources or the human resources and make the experience better. But it it's not a replacement 
I think the best way to think about AI is that if, if you couple AI with great customer service, that it can actually be a really incredible patient experience. Um, and that's where I think it gets fun. So Chris and I were talking about in, in some of these articles we were looking at earlier in the episode about, you know, there's that fear or fear, maybe reality. I don't know, I guess, depending on the industry um, in use case that AI is going to replace or take people's jobs. Um, so we're, we're not going to see that, at least not yet in healthcare. So this is not a replacement for FTEs in your marketing department. I, I don't think so at all. First off, I, I think that if you speak to anyone in the healthcare space and, and you ask them if, if they have a challenge with uh, not enough calls coming into their call center, um, I think, you know, no one would say yes, right? So we're constantly inundated with calls and emails coming into the system asking for help, whether it's scheduling an appointment or asking a, a health, you know, related question. And so if you can put some sort of AI tool in place that can help either, you know, direct or answer some of those needs, that's great. But it's not going to, it's not going to necessarily decrease your overall call volume. It's going to make those calls that go through to the call center, probably a little bit more, you know, higher down the funnel Mm. so that, so that when they get there, um, that, that customer service person, you know, is really, I would say practicing at the top of their license, right? They're, they're helping that person with, with their most important need. Whereas, you know, instead of, you know, having to give them directions to the clinic, you know, that could easily be handled by, you know, for instance, a chat bot. That's one less call that goes in, but it opens up a slot for a more important call. That's how I kind of see this, this really helping the system. So this is like uh, when I go on to uh, and I'll leave the name of the organization out. But when I go online because I've got an issue right with uh, some consumer piece of technology and I chat, you know, and then I get to a live agent and then they ask me all the same questions again. For lack of a better term, and this is probably a poor way to describe this, the phone tree that you would historically go through when you would call in somewhere, you know, press one for uh, at first, it was a language choice, and then you would choose like you know billing versus uh, ordering new products versus cancellations or whatever. You know, it was just to triage you to people, but they really didn't have any context. And so now this is kind of that next step, right? Of right. you know, contextually, now they they should be able to make a quicker decision and maybe even an easier decision, and maybe in some cases through machine learning and through the training that, you know, the AI can actually answer your question versus um, you having to wait to talk to somebody. So it's more of an efficiency thing. I, I absolutely, you know, and I think you described it in, in a great way. So instead of having that phone tree where you have to press, you know, two to go here and three to go here and, you know, you go through five different steps <laughs> instead, you could simply ask the question, whether that's through voice or through text the AI can start to understand the intent of your question. So it can kind of put those words together, those phrases, those utterances, and it can understand what you are looking for or what you need without having to make you press five times. And mm. so it can more quickly guide you to, to the right outcome. That's where this gets, you know, pretty exciting um, in that it's not necessarily, you know, you, they're, they're still going to the same resource and you're, you're still going to need to provide that resource, but you're creating a much easier path to get there and, and ultimately a better experience. 
I think the key, though, is how you train the AI to understand those intents. Um, and that's, you know, again, that's a combination of, of both machine learning. You know, machines are great. They can understand, um, you know, different words, the meaning of words. You know, you can back up machine learning with, you know, like a thesaurus or, or you know, a library of terms, things like that. But you also have to have that human element in there guiding the AI to understand those, those different intents. So, you know, a person's going to have to look at those. But then over time, the machine understands and, um, you know, it can start to answer those questions on its own. Yeah, I think that's great. So it really is about a user experience. This is still obviously very new or what I would consider new, at least for hospitals. Not that there aren't folks around the country doing that. I mean, that's obviously what you guys do and you work with a number of organizations. For for most folks out there that they're looking at this and are thinking, I'm not sure exactly what to do or where to start or, you know, okay, great. I understand now what AI is, but I, I don't know how that fits in my organization. I'm not sure I can explain it very well. Now, what are some of those initial things people can start doing to kind of dip their toe in the water, whether that just be research, go looking at examples. Uh, maybe there's, um, you know, small initiatives they can even look at or undertake. What, what, what are kind of some of your thoughts well, I, I think that's exactly what it is. It is about small initiatives and, and, you know, not trying to eat the elephant all at once, right? So the thing with AI, I think to, again, to remember is that it's a learning process and it, it will get better over time. So one, I think is to set clear expectations. So if someone's telling you they can take the product, put it on your, say your website, and it's going to solve all your problems overnight, I, I, I don't think that's that's being honest, right? So AI can help to start to solve some of those those problems, whether they're customer service problems, and then it can get better over time. So, you know, pick some pick some things you know that are going to be wins out of the gate. So questions around billing, questions around access to electronic medical records, things like that, that, you know, you're already answering, you already know how to direct people. And so you can start to take those kind of things off off the plate and and you know, have the AI handle them. So I think one is starting small. And then two, you know, understand it from the perspective of the, the customer or the consumer. I think anyone who's used a chatbot or used Alexa or Google Home, they're not perfect. And mm. um, I think customers accept that. You know, when you ask Alexa a question, you know, it'll get, you know, maybe six out of 10 of them correct. Um, but people don't throw away their Alexa devices. They understand that this is emerging technology and that it's starting to become better and better over time. And so if you start to use AI with your patients, say from a from a customer service perspective, I, I think that consumers are willing to accept that it's not going to be able to answer every question. But the key, I think, is to make sure you back it up with a great human customer experience so that if the AI can't do it, people have a path to go down um, to get their, their issue resolved. And I think that's the key is not just to kind of put it out there and let it, let it go out on its own. It really needs to be a collaborative effort between the technology and the, and the human, human touch. 
And I think that's uh, I think that's a great point. We can't underestimate. You know, everybody still has to do their job. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. That's still really important, and it takes you know uh, some, some in a lot of cases, if not all cases, a human touch to really make sure that we deliver on that experience. So. Man, this was uh, this was great. I know we could keep talking for for quite some time, and we will probably do that again in the future. But appreciate you coming on. Uh, what if people want to track you down, ask additional questions, things like that? What, what's the best way for people to find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at B M and my last name Gresh G R E S H uh, is my Twitter handle. Um, or they can uh, feel free to email me as well at Brian at LoyalHealth.com. Awesome. Um, but feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, man, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thanks again. Okay. Wrapping up our episode on artificial intelligence and all the scary things around that. I, I think that every time we do an episode on artificial intelligence, we always end up on the scary, creepy stuff read. But this one in particular went into some depths around it. And we got ourselves corrected by someone that's an expert in AI. That's right. So we appreciate that. And, I mean, we keep trying to do other topics, but the computer just keeps telling us to do AI topics. So. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that was a good episode. We had a lot of good stuff. And I know we got some a couple of things coming up, Reed. I understand that you're going to be at a conference really soon. Yeah, I'll be at the Hospital Association of Pennsylvania April the 12th. So that is, as you're listening to this, about a week away. We'll be talking about some of the benchmarking around consumer review sites and things like that that I've uh, been working on and done at some of the other state associations. So anyway, if you're up in that area, uh, please reach out and say hi. Uh, if you're going to be there, I would love to know that. But if you're not, um, still, let me know. Let me hear from you. And the very day before, I'm going to be on a Shushmid interview where I'm going to be talking, along with some other healthcare marketers, around the, developing a digital front door or the new digital front door and what that means to hospitals and health systems. And we're going to try to define that. And then... The forums for healthcare strategists. So in last, uh, I guess, last day or two of April, first couple of days of May, we will be in Salt Lake City, Utah. Beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah, for the forums for healthcare strategists. So that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I know we'll see a lot of folks there. A lot of you that listen to this podcast, which we very much appreciate, will be there. And so I uh, would love to see you, hear from you, maybe even record a little bit with you. So you never know. Let us know. Mm-hmm. Reach out beforehand, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever is convenient, and let us know that uh, you're going to be there. That'd be awesome. That's right. Looking forward to seeing you there. We're going to be doing an episode on podcasts ourselves, but uh, we definitely want to grab a couple of you and pull you aside and maybe get some audio that we can use in future episodes. So I'm um, looking forward to hearing from you Yeah, all. absolutely. So a little deviation today. Normally we do uh, recommendations. We're going to skip that today in, I guess, honor of, I don't know if that's the right way Do you honor April Fool's. I don't know. Anyway, April Fool's pranks. Yes. Yes. Some of our best. Reed, I was forwarded mm-hmm. one today that just cracked me up. You know the Nielsen Norman group, don't you? The UX people, user experience okay. company. Yes, Nielsen. Mm-hmm. So they published an article on April 1st about canine UX. <laughs> creating essential usability principles for dogs. 
And uh, it's just a great article. It goes into understanding the different canine personas. Like, for example, the personas of dogs. We know that dogs are mobile. Dogs are social. And also dogs eat things. I think those are important aspects of personas of a dog. And then it talks about wearables, walks, exercise, and GPS. And how they all play together with augmented reality and virtual reality. And they go into some key UI guidelines for dogs. Here's one of the things that's very important for dogs, Read Consistency is critical. While consistency in any user experience is important with dogs, it's even more so. Experienced dog trainers will tell you that for dogs to learn proper behavior, consistency enforcing routines, expectations, and commands is critical. That applies to some common UI culprits such as swipe ambiguity, gestures without signifiers, tap uncertainty for flat UI elements like ghost buttons, and the unusual placement of common elements like navigation and search. <laughs> it's a great the article. Thing, it's really <laughs> not that far off the reality of probably some of that. But anyway, <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. One other thing they also advised against, avoid using the hamburger menu. Because, you know, dogs eat everything. There you go. That's awesome. So a couple of them that come to mind for me, and I've done done one of these. Uh, One was uh, back when I worked in the telecom industry. So this was probably around 2001, two, somewhere in there. One of the big cell phone manufacturers, I don't remember who it was, Samsung or Sanyo at the time, maybe it was even Motorola, I don't remember, but they announced they were coming out with a new rotary phone. And so it was like the cell phone and it had the rotary dial on the front. And you should have seen how excited people got like in the office, like, man, this will be awesome. This is really kind of a cool idea. And it was like, Hey guys, uh, this is not, this isn't real. What this is not happening. So that was pretty funny uh, that I was kind of there when it happened or whatever. But the other one that's fun to do, it's it's an old one, but a good one. And it started out on desktop computers or laptops, I guess. You can do it still on that um, or or cell phones. If you can get a hold of somebody's phone or iPad without them knowing it, iPad may be a little bit easier and it's unlocked, you can do this. Or if on like a desktop computer or laptop, they have a lot of stuff on their desktop that they use shortcuts or folders or whatever Mm -hmm. take a screenshot of it and make it the wallpaper and then move everything off and then they'll just be like clicking (laughs) on it for days and not know what's wrong with their computer and so you can do the same thing on people's phone take a screenshot then move all the apps off page one and uh, it's hilarious that's cruel reed that's very cruel it's awesome uh, if you want to see a funny video, it's it's one that I've seen a number of times, and it's really pretty great. But if you just Google uh, teacher gives fake spelling tests for April Fool's, it's really funny. This teacher uh, recorded himself, and it sounds like younger kids. You can't actually see the kids in the video. Uh, gave them a spelling test, and it's just made up words, and it is... And he uses them all in a sentence. That's the best part, and it is hilarious. That's a great video. Was a matter. Mm-hmm. W-A-Z-A-M-A-T-A. Yes. And here it is in a sentence. What's the matter with you? Yes. Or tangentine. <laughs> he ate his spaghetti with a tangentine. Um, anyway, so good stuff. Always fun. Well, awesome. Uh, good stuff. And uh, a successful episode 61 in the books. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to t- check mm-hmm. out touchpoint.health if you have not been over to the new site. 
A couple of new podcasts have launched there, so go check those out. Would love for you to rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, just continue to uh, let us hear from you online. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.